Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Happy Hour History. Today, I wanted to talk about the African diaspora throughout the Americas and just what diasporic means in general. So we may also have time to cover the Asian diaspora in the Americas, but depending on how long this goes, um, I might add it to another episode. First, it's probably best to define some words and themes here as they're not always used outside of the history or social science fields. So diaspora has a few definitions, but the one that fits best for us is, quote, any group migration or flight from a country or region, unquote. Now, in this case, we mean the forced movement of these people, which is why it's also important not to lump descendants of the diaspora as immigrants in the way that we'll be discussing today. Africans as a continental group made up of various cultures and, you know, groups within did not willingly come to the Americas to be enslaved. So they are not immigrants. Um, they were migrated but the language matters here as they don't mean the same thing. And likewise, Asians as a continental group made up of various cultures and groups within did not always willingly come to the Americas to be enslaved or, you know, even to work, right? So those groups are also not immigrants, the ones who were forcibly moved. And so again, they were migrated, but they did not willingly do so. Now, people who volunteer to be indentured servants, that would be, those would be immigrants because they made a conscious decision. They knew what they were getting into, so to speak, with regard to their labor terms. And so those people would be considered immigrants. They made the choice themselves and made the arrangements themselves to get to another country. So when you hear someone mention diasporic studies in the Americas, it's usually the study of people who were forcibly migrated to and throughout the Americas. So this can also include indigenous people who were moved to new territories and throughout the Caribbean to displace them from where their people were, you know, headquartered located in. Because they did that also. And the United States <clears throat> would sometimes move different native groups into the Caribbean so that they couldn't get back home, right? Because they would be stranded on another island. So within the diaspora in the Americas, we have different groups, most of which I already mentioned. We have native indigenous folks, African folks, Asians, and European groups that are part of that. These four continents of people lived among each other throughout the American colonies. And I guess I should say that they lived amongst each other well before 1492, right? People had been trading intercontinentally for centuries. <laughs> um, so it wasn't a new concept that they lived together in the Americas. It's just that it was, a di it was on much different terms. So when I say American colonies here, I mean English, Spanish, French, Dutch, Portuguese controlled islands, countries, and territories, those are all being considered American colonies when I speak about it here because the Western Hemisphere was known as 
um, you know, the new world or America. So I don't just mean the United States, unless I specifically say so. So despite having less than full legal status throughout the history of this hemisphere, the oppressed left their cultural imprint and their literal DNA in those countries still today. There are Chinese descended Jamaicans who've lived in Jamaica for centuries. There are black descended Peruvians or, you know, African descended Peruvians who've been there for centuries. There's Filipinos that were in Chile, right? I mean, it goes on and on. Indigenous descended people throughout the Americas, along with the aforementioned groups, they're still met with the lack of representation about their cultural existence, as well as their influence on the culture. And oftentimes they don't have equal access to education, jobs, and other things that are meant to provide class stability and access to them as citizens of that country, especially as the descendants of people who were enslaved and displaced centuries before present day. So while we have a more global society where information, even misinformation, unfortunately, can be rapidly spread, I think part of the confusion about these things is because often people do not understand the difference between nationality, race, and ethnicity, especially when it comes to discussions of lack of representation. Oftentimes, the Black and Indigenous descended peoples are excluded. Now, like I said, there are Asian descended people from these countries that also do not get representation, but their numbers in the population aren't generally as large. So let's define the big three that people tend to get confused here in the United States and probably elsewhere also, but those are nationality, ethnicity, and race. So nationality is defined as the country that you were born in. Ethnicity is defined as the social group that shares a common and distinctive culture, region, or language. And I should pause real quick to say in the United States, there are only two ethnic groups to choose from for survey purposes. There is Hispanic Latino or non-Hispanic Latino. So race is generally determined by phenotype, which is determined by having common physical characteristics or traits that are commonly found within a group of people. So let's use some people to explain how these things are easily conflated and how they are defined by the individual, but more so by the people who are observing us at any given time. For myself, both of my parents were born in the United States. My mom was born in Michigan. My dad was born in New York. My family has been in the United States since the 1700s. That's as far back as the records that we can find. So we are from, you know, the English colony United States. That's important for my purpose in this example. I, I personally also have typical traits that are found within the black racial group. I have brown skin, highly textured hair, and dark colored eyes. So my nationality is Americans because I was born in the United States. My nationality is not African-American. I was not born in continental Africa. It would be just American. My ethnicity is non-Hispanic because myself nor my family have any ties to a country that was formerly occupied by Spain or Portugal. My race is black because of my phenotype. So let's use somebody else. Diana de los Santos, also known as Amara La Negra, is a Afro-Dominican um, performer. She does Latin music. She was born in Miami. So her nationality is American. 
her family is from the Dominican Republic. I believe both of her parents are from the Dominican Republic. So she's ethnically Hispanic Latino. That's her ethnicity. And her race is black. And you can, you know, Google image any of these people and, you know, get an understanding of what I'm talking about. But the difference between her and I, in this case, is our ethnicity. She's Afro-Latina. I am not. She has ties to a Latin American country. I do not. Let's use um, a different person. So let's use Cameron Diaz. She was born in San Diego. So her nationality is American. Her family has ties to Cuba. So her ethnicity is Hispanic Latino. And her race is white. She has the looks that are commonly found among people from Europe. A person of Chinese ancestry who's born in Peru, for example, their nationality is Peruvian. They're born in Peru. Their ethnicity is Hispanic Latino, and their race would be Asian. Let's see. Now, um, someone who's born within Latin America but was not born in a Spanish or Portuguese colony is not Latinx. So examples of that would be countries like Guyana, Jamaica, Haiti. Despite the fact that even for Haiti, it's on part of the same island as the Dominican Republic, which is considered a Latin country, Haiti was occupied by France. The language of the modern day language of Haiti is not Spanish. It's not the language in Jamaica or Guyana, the, all those, you know, in Jamaica and Guyana, it's English. And like I said, in Haiti, it was French. So I hope that makes sense for the example. Though they are in the same region, right, of the Caribbean slash Latin America, those are not considered Latin countries. And so the people from there would not be considered Latinx. Let's say a person let's say a Chinese person is born in South Africa and immigrates to the United States. Okay. Their race is Asian. Their ethnicity is non-Hispanic Latino, but their nationality would be African American because they migrated to America from an African country. I think part of the reason it's often conflated is because when you hear people say Asian American or African American to describe someone's race, well, you often do hear them use those terms to describe someone's race, but the language can be applied to nationality for those people who are immigrants. I've also seen people use the term African-American to describe black people in Brazil or black people in Mexico, because oftentimes in this country, using the term African-American is the you know politically correct way to describe black people or to say that someone is black. Some people want to be called African-American. Some people, you know, I've noticed that a lot of people tend to use African-American when they're, you know, describing someone's race. So, however, as non-Americans, you can't use that, right? If someone is a non-American, because in this case, like I said, if they're from Brazil, they're not necessarily african-american they're afro-brazilian because they're black from brazil or if they're black from mexico they would be afro-mexican so let's talk about the denial of those labels because like i said it's not generally how you identify yourself it's also how others see you in the moment that you come into their consciousness so even if Cameron Diaz did not consider, I don't know if she considered herself, but even if she didn't consider herself white, she is still white. That's not up to her. 
she has the traits associated with whiteness. She has yellow hair. She has blue eyes. She's got very light skin. Thus, her experience in wherever she occupies, especially in the United States, will be one that people give to white people. And furthermore, no matter where she goes, her experience will be one that people choose to treat someone who is a white person. Now, that could be a positive, neutral, or negative experience, depending on where she is at any given time. But like I said, it also depends on where she is by region or by country. Now, she might say, I'm not white, but everyone who looks at her without her speaking will assume that she is. So she is. If I didn't consider myself black, which I would never, but I've met plenty of black people who take issue with being labeled as such because of how it is weaponized and degraded in our society, it would not change the fact that I sit firmly in that phenotypic racial group. People will treat me how they have decided that I should be treated because they assign me as black. So let's discuss how this matters when you travel. When I travel, I'm still black, but I'm an American and I have a U.S. passport and I also speak English. So that can sometimes get me access to certain spaces because of the positive stereotype that I have money to spend wherever I am when I'm not in the United States. And, you know, obviously as a black American, I don't always occupy those privileges in my own country, but I at some times have experienced them abroad. Now, I have been in Latin countries where people have come up to me assuming that I speak Spanish or Portuguese because I look like a large part of their population. They don't assume until I speak that I'm not from there, that I'm not one of them or can't understand them, right? Like I said, until I'm speaking in English or if I start speaking another language and claim to be from somewhere else, they assume that I'm one of them. I've met people who were very visibly black, but wanted to say, oh, I'm not black, I'm Dominican, or oh, I'm not black, I'm Panamanian. And that's an example of when people don't understand the definitions of the terms, the deniability, that deniability of existence is causing a rift among populations, I think, that occupy spaces of oppression, even if not all spaces of oppression. Someone who's a lighter complected Salvadoran who maybe has blue eyes and brown hair is still going to get preferential treatment and may not be considered white in their country, but may be seen as white in the United States. Someone who comes to mind who is, you know, um, an actress is Alexis Bledel, and she considers herself to be a Latina because she lived in, I believe it was South America, but she still phenotypically appears white, right? That's important. She can't deny that she benefits from that, even if she doesn't mean to, because she didn't choose her DNA. Part of the discussion surrounding the lack of Afro-Latinx representation in the production that just came out of In the Heights, I think it was on Netflix, it's supposed to be about Washington Heights in New York, was that there was a lack of dark-skinned Afro-Latinx as central figures, not just as background props. And I saw an interview where Gina Torres, an Afro-Latinx actress, said that she learned pretty early on in her career when she was trying to get cast for roles that directors wanted their Latinx actresses to look Italian. Now, if you Google image her, it's Torres with an S at the end. So Gina exists in a world where she is both a black woman and as a Latina. But she was talking about how 
she rarely ever would get chosen to play Latinas, even though she's from that ethnic group and grew up in that culture. Part of being a descendant of the diaspora is lineage. So for black people throughout the hemisphere, the commonality is the experience of our ancestors having been enslaved. Now, we know that not all blacks in the U.S., nor Mexico, nor South America, nor the Caribbean, etc., were always slaves because they could and did get their freedom prior to the mid-17th century. They were indentured servants, for example, so they had termed labor, just like, you know, Europeans, and they were freed afterwards, or they were given their freedom, they bought their freedom, etc. Most of the people were enslaved. Most of the African-descended people from this hemisphere were enslaved. As the numbers of their forced migration increased, after 1650 and they were barred from getting freedom as easily as they had been able to prior. So in the United States, being black is considered a detriment because of the lineage of our enslaved ancestors, as well as propaganda by the dominant group, which made being black be seen as negative as well as a death sentence, really. And even if not all were enslaved, there's a shared experience of segregation based on race. So when Afro-Latinx people are left out of opportunities that give them the chance to showcase the diversity of that ethnic group, it is rooted in erasure. The lineage of their likely enslaved ancestors is how modern day people maintain oppression among a racial group within their ethnic group. And I know apologies were issued on behalf of the people who were in charge and made decisions surrounding the production of In the Heights that just came out, but it's 2021 and these conversations are not new at all. They've been around for many, many decades and literal centuries. So a lot of these people have to stop quote listening so much and start actually acting on it and doing things ahead of time, not after they've already made their production because it doesn't matter. Like it's already done. So in this case, the people who are the products of mixing in the hemisphere are positioning themselves as the gatekeepers of their culture, identity, and storytelling, which is racist, even if they don't consider themselves to be white. Even if we look at Lin-Manuel Miranda, for example, he's a very fair complected Latin man. Okay, so he still has privileges within that because of his phenotype, whether he wants to admit it, accept it or not. And what I also meant by my previous statement is that typically when people are calling for, you know, actors or actresses who are supposed to be depicting Latinx people, Latinx culture, they are traditionally looking for people who are pretty light complected or, you know, very, very light brown. So that's what I meant by mixing, right? People who are Spanish and indigenous descended, but lean more toward their European ancestry, which would give them the lighter hair color, the lighter eye color, the lighter skin color, more so than they mean for people who are firmly indigenous without much mixing. So people who look like women like Yelitsa Aparicio, people who are identifiably from indigenous native societies within Latin America, nor do they mean people who sit firmly within the phenotype of blackness. Someone like Diana de los Santos, for example, which is, who is a Marla Negra. And that's a direct reason why people here in this country expect Latinos to always look like J-Lo or Shakira, not, you know, a wide range of people. Even within the United States, for those of us who are black descendants of slaves in this country, 
the erasure is also experienced, which is why a lot of people specifically um, denote ourselves as descendants of slaves, right? Because there are things that we were left out of despite our lineage and the things that our families had to go through for centuries and decades that other people were able to come over and benefit from because they were racially considered black, but did not like, I don't want to use the term earn, but didn't put in that work, weren't affected by those things for so long. So those gains that were supposed to be for black people, especially in the 70s and before it was eradicated, and I believe in the 80s, it was meant for the black descendants of slaves, the very people who had gone through enslavement in this country, Jim Crow segregation in this country, obviously like unfair lynching, unfair housing practices, racial segregation, being forced to live in, you know, areas that became ghettos because they did not have funding, all of that. So it wouldn't, so the lineage is important and it wouldn't be right to not highlight that as part of this podcast. And I also want to say that there are people who share common phenotypes associated with blackness who are not technically black in the way that we define it. So there are people from India the, or the Philippines, for example, to name a few, who have black phenotypic characteristics. They have dark skin, dark eyes, textured hair, but it's not until they speak or share aspects of their culture, maybe that would be like food, clothing, language, etc., that you know that they're not black, black, the way we often define it, which in this country would mean that you are um, a black American. So like I said, the diaspora is a really broad topic, but it also does include the Asian diaspora throughout the Americas. So I guess the one I'll talk about today is the Chinese diaspora. So guano was one of the principal exports from the Pacific coastal regions of the Americas, but it was very hard to maintain a steady supply of workers who are willing to endure the labor as well as the disagreeable odor from the bird excrement because guano is bird poop. So whole mountains of it were produced and its potential as a fertilizer because of its nitrous chemistry couldn't be ignored. So the Spanish crown began enslaving Chinese people to mine those guano rich landscapes because they could not keep workers who wanted to be there. Daily quotas were imposed on laborers and there were also punishments for failure to meet those daily like quotas. So how many pounds of bird excrement they were supposed to mine. So an estimated 100,000 Chinese died during these labor efforts and suicide was very common. So in addition to harvesting guano on the Pacific side, the Chinese were also enslaved for agricultural pursuits in the Caribbean, in places like Jamaica and Cuba. So while the Chinese labor and enslavement is not as commonly discussed in a traditional lecture about the transatlantic trade, they worked alongside enslaved Africans and indigenous peoples throughout the American hemisphere. So there's increasing literature about the role of Asian labor in conjunction with African and indigenous stories throughout the Americas. It's not a far stretch to imagine these people also ran away and were adopted into free societies that sprang up around the hemisphere. The first Chinatown in Peru, um, Bairochino, was established in the 1850s in Lima, just to give you an example. So the Chinese populations of Central and South America are still very much present today with their descendants included in the populations of the large cities throughout the continent. And a large reason, well, 
a lot of what would happen is Chinese people would be kidnapped back in China, especially children, and brought to the Americas for purposes of enslavement. So we use the term kidnapped today. I think I may have said this in a previous podcast, but the term used to be shanghai That was the term that they used for kidnapping um, because it was so common to, you know, steal Chinese laborers, um, either under false pretenses for the purposes of coming to the Americas to, you know, El Dorado to get rich, to, you know, go back home and be able to establish wealth just like the Spanish wanted to, just like a lot of people wanted to do. Um, And they may have been willing to go into a contract labor agreement to be indentured servants, but upon arriving into the Americas, there was no consulate or ambassadors to prevent them from being sold into chattel slavery. And so that's exactly what happened to many of those people throughout the hemisphere, especially in the Caribbean and South America. Interestingly enough, Manila was the trade port that the ships would typically go to before they came across the Pacific to the Americas. So Filipinos are also part of that diaspora. Even though they were not always targeted in the same way Chinese people were, Filipinos were also still brought as chattel laborers into the Americas, in South America, throughout the hemisphere, by by virtue of their not being white. So when you hear people discuss which people were considered enslavable, anybody who was not European was considered enslavable. And I usually show this documentary in my classes, and one of the distinctions made is that, oh, well, Christians didn't enslave other Christians. So one of the, what do you say? One of the um, excuses, I guess, justifications is a better word, that a lot of the Catholics and Christian groups used to justify enslaving people was that they were not Christian or Catholic or even um, Muslim because that was happening on the other half of the African continent. I don't, I'm not a historian of that, so I'd have to look more into that, but it is part of it. People would say that, you know, these people weren't the same religion as them, so they were enslavable, but that is an excuse because there were, especially when we're talking about Christianity, there were people who were Christians within continental Africa prior to 1492. So that is just a convenient excuse that is given because most people don't really learn African history prior to colonization, so prior to the late 15th century. And so, you know, people are able to just go along with that crap narrative that actually is not true at all. (laughs) So let's see, books and other sources. So one book that I highly recommend if you're interested on this topic would be Africans to Spanish America, which is by Sherman K. Bryant, as well as some other historians. And there are two pretty good documentaries. So one of, actually, I'm sorry, another book, not another documentary. Another book is 1493, which was written by Charles C. Mann. I really love that book. There's also 1491, but I haven't finished reading it, so I don't want to recommend it yet. But um, a great documentary to watch is the Black in Latin America series that was done by PBS and hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr., because that documentary really talks about the shared culture throughout the Latin countries, whether they be mainland Spanish territories or Caribbean territories, because you have the same groups of Africans who are being displaced in those countries. And so a lot of the same foods 
Well, a lot of these countries have the same foods. They're just called something different. Or they may have slight variances for how they say their words based on, you know, the influence of non-Spanish languages on, you know, at the time. There are also dances that were created, which is why I mentioned the musical. I mean, I'm considering it a musical, but the production in the Heights that just came out is because it's a musical that is supposed to be highlighting Latinx culture, but a lot of aspects of Latinx culture are rooted in African culture, right? The Spanish were not doing their own work. (laughs) 95% of the indigenous people died by what the earth, like the mid 1500s, like 95% of them had died off. So even if you want to think logically regarding the numbers, who would be left to establish the culture? The same people who were forced to cook, right? You're thinking about food. That's a part of culture. The people who are forced to make the food are infusing what the colonizers want to eat with what they have locally and what they know how to do from back home. So same thing with the dancing. If you're forcing a group of people to be the entertainment, they're creating the dances. They're using drums. Drums are an African thing. So (laughs) these are... Um, this is why it's also so nuanced that you have a musical that's about an ethnic group, but you actively leave out the, the people who look like firmly the descendants of the people who created the very culture that you're highlighting. So I'm not going to get worked up because I'm keeping it calm. It's still summer. We still good. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off of this podcast. But like I said, I encourage you to watch documentaries about this to follow Afro-Latinx historians and commentators. Get familiar with the history of these areas because it's very important. And like I said, make sure that when you're using the terms nationality, race, ethnicity, that you know what the differences are and that you hold people accountable to know what the differences are because it's very nuanced and it is very important. And like I said, lineage is also a large part of that. I don't think I have to define lineage, right? But I kind of did, I guess, even though I didn't really mean to in the beginning. So those four things are very, very important in understanding the complaints that these people still have about how they are misrepresented, underrepresented, and downright excluded from aspects of their culture. Because none of us just identifies in one way. We have many different things that make up who we are, either by self-identifying or as other people identifying us. And all of those things are valid. They can and do coexist at the same time, whether people want to acknowledge it or not. So I will see you on the next podcast. Have a great day. Bye.